Evening, everyone. Very quiet tonight. Evening, everyone. It's far better. Thank you, Ralph. Pray, play, say. I'm just interested that he didn't ask me to say anything about my sporting. <laughs> I'm very relieved he didn't. Uh, but that's really helpful, that whole pray, play, say thing. I haven't really come across that before. But uh, if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, and in fact, probably best you don't, just take that away with you. But in the run-up to uh, Good Friday and Holy Saturday and Resurrection Day, we are, as I said this morning, spending three Sundays focusing on the events that surrounded the very first Easter. It is still very much, as Ralph said, part of our Essential Word series, but we have jumped forward in the story in order to just tie it in with this time of year. And this morning, based on Luke chapter 22, we we sort of thought about what happened on what we call, or some people call, Monday Thursday, which is the day before execution day, whenever the disciples ate the Last Supper with Jesus. And as part of that Passover meal, Jesus took bread and he took wine and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Now at the time whenever Jesus said that, the disciples didn't fully comprehend what was going on or what it meant. But subsequently, and again we said this this morning, as a result of the simple act of just eating bread and drinking wine, it was to become a regular practice of Christian communities as the way of remembering what Jesus did for us on that very first Easter. And after that meal, we discovered that Jesus went to a place called the Mount of Olives and to a garden called Gethsemane, where the main activity that he and his disciples engaged in was prayer. And once again, Jesus got to that place of submitting himself to the Father's will and actually saying, okay, Father, I'm willing to take this cup. And he prayed if it was God's will that the Father would take it from him, but he was willing to submit to the Father's will and take that cup. And we said this morning that cup was the cup of God's wrath. And so we reflected on the fact that Jesus reached a place where he was willing to take the wrath of God, the full wrath of God for our sin upon himself. And therefore, this morning, as we gathered round this table, my encouragement to each of us was that we would eat and drink with truly grateful hearts because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And none of us can really begin to imagine or comprehend what contemplating that cup was like for Jesus. To actually consider that you were about to take the wrath of God for the sin of the world upon yourself. None of us can even begin to go there. And so as Luke says, the anguish of that, the prospect of that, the thought of what lay ahead on execution day for Jesus caused him to sweat blood. And tonight we pick up the story, uh, because we really are picking it up just from where we left it off. We pick it up in John 18. So if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn there? It's page 1086 in the Bibles in the pews. And we're really just going to walk our way through the story. This is something we've been doing as part of the essential work. I've sort of struck as I've been preparing that really that is in fact all I am doing each week as I come here. These are not sort of like 
I don't know what, if there is such a thing as a regular sermon, they're really just a chance to walk through the story and draw some things out that maybe we haven't noticed before, haven't thought about before, just so that we're actually getting a sense of what is going on in this one unfolding story of redemption. But let's pick it up at verse 2 of John 18. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So, Jesus, so Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Now just pause there. Because what you have is Judas leading a mob to what is clearly a familiar place. It's a place that Jesus often went with his disciples. And Jesus leads this mob to arrest Jesus. Now, it's only John's gospel that actually tells us that this rabble included Roman soldiers. None of the rest of the gospel writers tell us that. But John does. And so this group must have been prepared for the worst. They must have expected resistance or some hassle. They clearly weren't sure as a group how this was going to play out. Now, contrast that with verse 4. Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them. You see, nothing about this moment took Jesus by surprise. Jesus is not a helpless victim caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. In fact, Jesus, and this is really the one thing I want to say tonight, Jesus is in complete control here. And that is so important for us to recognize. These people are not coming to take his life. That's how it might read. That's how many people see the story. But these people are not coming to take Jesus' life. Nothing could be further from the truth. He is actually giving them his life. And we know that from something Jesus said earlier on. No one takes my life from me, he said. But I lay it down of my own accord. And so Jesus doesn't run. Instead, Jesus, if you look at verse 4, he steps forward and he seizes the initiative and he asks, who is it that you want? And they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And whenever Jesus identifies himself, and I must admit, I'm not sure I've ever picked this up before as I've read the Easter story. But as Jesus says, I am he, there is some kind of spontaneous and apparently involuntary action. Look at verse 6. They drew back and fell to the ground. I honestly, I don't think I've ever noticed this before. And some Bible footnotes, and you may have one of those Bibles that has this as a footnote, it actually suggests that what Jesus actually said was, the I am is here. And given the significance of that title for some of the mob, not all of the mob, but for some of the mob, and all its associations with God and his responses to Moses at the burning bush whenever God said, I am who I am, that may explain what must have been quite a comical scene. That gripped by fear, because of the potential presence of the Almighty, this group collapsed in a heap in the ground. And whatever the reason, and as I say, I haven't noticed this before, but whatever the reason, this lynch mob have to pick themselves up off the ground, dust themselves down, and then continue to do what they came to do. 
And again, please just hear this. It's clear who's in control. But now that they're back on their feet, Jesus asks them the exact same question. Who is it you want? And they repeat their answer, Jesus of Nazareth. It's as if they've been completely dazed and confused and they've had to start the whole thing all over again. And while they're still slightly off balance, literally, Jesus asks them to let the disciples go. Which they do. But look at verse 9. And it's going to be on the screen. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Jesus is in complete control. Although one thing I do wonder is, how did Judas process those words as he stood there? Had Jesus lost him? Or was Judas never given to Jesus in the first place? And almost on cue at this moment in the story, and predictably in so many ways, Peter can't contain himself. And so he draws his sword and he cuts off Malchus's right ear, who is the servant of the high priest. Now, it's only John who identifies the attacker and the victim. None of the rest of the Gospels name the person that lost their right ear, nor the person that cut it off. Only John tells us it was Malchus and it was Peter. But I wonder, did Peter actually miss? I mean, if you're going to fight back, which Peter was clearly intent on doing, Would you not have gone for the kill? I mean, taking his head off rather than just an ear. Why? Well, Peter's actions were potentially toxic because bearing in mind that a bunch of Roman soldiers were standing there, this rash act on Peter's part could have been the very excuse that they were looking for. Somebody has lashed out. It's time for us to weigh in. And so what you could have had here was a massacre. A complete massacre. But before anything else happens, Jesus intervenes and he commands Peter to put his sword down. And as a result of that, the disciples are allowed to go. And again, I want us to notice, Jesus is in complete control. Total control here. Not even the actions of an unwise member of his party is going to derail the way it's meant to be. And so in verse 11, Peter say, or Jesus says to Peter, listen, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, listen, Peter, it's meant to be like this. Don't intervene. Don't get in the way. I'm in control here. And I've no doubt that Jesus sensed Peter's frustration with Judas. I've no doubt Jesus sensed Peter's injustice at what was happening. But as ever, what was Jesus doing? He was saving Peter from himself and from certain death. And it's really interesting that in these scenes, Jesus makes no attempt to save himself. He's always concerned about other people. Well, at this point, the soldiers and the commander and the Jewish officials, they arrest Jesus. And it says they bind him and they take him for questioning. And in the rest of this chapter, what you have are two people being interrogated. And for whatever reason, John tells their stories alongside one another. And he alternates between the two stories. The first story concerns Peter. 
And Peter is going to find himself questioned on three occasions. But before we concentrate on Peter's denials and his failures, let's at least recognize that Peter follows Jesus. It's really important to note this. Peter plus one other disciple, according to verse 15. Who was that other disciple? Who was the other disciple that followed with Jesus? Most people think it was John, but that's pure speculation. The rest of the gospel writers tell us that all the disciples fled. But at least Peter is there. He may mess up, but at least he's there to mess up. And as he stands outside the door of the high priest's courtyard, a servant girl asks him a leading question. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Peter says, I'm not. And just continues to warm himself by the fire. And John then breaks in the story and he takes us to the second person who's being interrogated. He takes us to Jesus. And he's really wanting us to catch the idea that here are two people being questioned. One caves in under pressure. One doesn't. And it says in John's account that Annas questions Jesus. And what he tries to do is he tries to get Jesus to testify himself, which nobody should be compelled to do. But Jesus couldn't plead the Fifth Amendment. But nobody should be compelled to testify against themselves. And so what Annas does is he asks Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus turns around to Annas and he says to him, why are you questioning me? Or ask those who have heard me. Surely they will know what I've said. Now the minute Jesus says this, one of the officials steps forward and slaps Jesus in the face because he considers his response insolent. And Jesus challenges this reaction. And Annas responds by binding Jesus and sending him off to Caiaphas, the high priest. In other words, Annas gets nothing out of Jesus other than a rebuke for his methodology. 